Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Genesis chapter 48 and 49. So just to give you a little bit of an introduction. Wow, that's embarrassing. So um, Jacob is now, at this point, that's not Jacob. Jacob is now 147 years old. And he knows that he's going to be dying soon. And God has given him 17 years of life, basically, with his son Joseph. You know, he thought Joseph was dead, and, uh, and then and now he's told, or 17 years ago, he's told, hey, your, your, your son, he's still alive. In fact, he's the prime minister of Egypt. And, uh, and so God, in his grace, has given those two men, both Joseph and Jacob, 17 years. And I'm sure, you know, Joseph's considered it a gift. Jacob's considered it a gift. You know, my father, um, he, uh, he's gone to be with the Lord in 2010, but I remember years ago, in fact, I think it was in 1999, I was trying to figure back in my head, he had been diagnosed with an aneurysm, an aortic aneurysm, and it was really large, and they said, we've got to get you in there and do surgery. And so I flew out there, my brother from Michigan flew out there, we all gathered around um, my family there in San Jose um, as my dad was having surgery, and you know, that's a very serious deal, I mean, it, could have died easily um, uh, because of the just the size of the aneurysm and everything but he survived it praise God he survived it and uh, but then at that point he was diagnosed with COPD and emphysema and so uh, and if if you're familiar with that disease it's it's a slow progressive thing and and eventually you know if if the person doesn't die from something else eventually that will take them and uh, and so anyways, uh, my dad had 11 years after he was diagnosed. After that, after that surgery, we thought he was, he, was, he was a goner, but he survived. Then he had 11 years. And, and those 11 years, man, we, we, you know, even when he passed away, it was like we weren't bitter. We weren't like, like, God, why'd you take him? At that point, we were just thankful. Lord, thank you for giving us 11 years. What a gift those 11 years were. You know, the, the reality is life is a gift, isn't it, for all of us? But it takes sometimes something like that to recognize, wow, what a precious amount of time I had with my loved one. And sometimes, you know, unfortunately that time is gone and, and we've, we've missed that. Well, Jacob, you know, God has graciously given Jacob 17 years to get reacquainted with Joseph. And Joseph and his sons, they know, uh, jo- uh, Jake, excuse me, Jacob and his sons, they know that jo- uh, Jacob's time is running short. And so that's where we're kind of, that's kind of the introduction, the kind of the background between, uh, behind Genesis chapter 48. So if, you're, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to verse 1 of Genesis chapter 48. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. 
Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Uh, as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So, what's taking place here? Jacob is, in a sense, adopting uh, Joseph's two sons who were born to him in Egypt, um, Ephraim and Manasseh. And uh, but he says, you know, those first two sons, they're mine. Anyone, they'll, they'll, they're going to carry. They're going to effectively what Jacob is doing is he's giving Joseph a double portion it was the of the inheritance it was the inheritance of the firstborn normally it should have gone to Reuben we'll talk about that later on but now Jacob is giving Joseph that double portion and so it's through Joseph's two sons Ephraim and Manasseh and uh, and so he says those two sons you know they're going to get the same kind of inheritance as uh, as Reuben and Simeon, and you know, the rest of your brothers are going to get. Um, any kids you have after that, after that, they're under your name. They'll be receiving your inheritance eventually. Interesting observation. If you can read the writing there, verses 1 through 6, you'll notice that it mentions Jacob. In verses 8 through 22, you notice that the name is Israel. There's a switch there. And, and it's interesting. You know, of all the other characters in the Bible who were given new names, you know, Saul's was, name was changed to Paul. Uh, you know, these people that receive new names, uh, usually once their name is changed, they're called by their new name. But as we've noticed and we've talked about it throughout uh, Genesis, Jacob is sometimes referred to as Jacob and sometimes Israel. And so there's a significance, I believe, in, in most cases, maybe not all, but in most cases, I think there's a significance that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us. So just take notice of that as we're going through it. So verse 7, Jacob continues, But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. You know, it's like, why is Jacob saying this? It's almost as though uh, Jacob is just, you know, he's reminiscing. He's dying and he's reminiscing, or possibly maybe he never had that conversation with Joseph. Maybe he never sat down and said, hey, this is what happened when your mother passed away. Because, you know, maybe Joseph didn't ask or was too young at the time when it happened. And, and, and then he's gone for so many years. And now, finally, Jacob's like, you know, let me tell you about your mom. <clears throat> now, here's why we see a narration switch from Jacob to Israel. The rest of this chapter, we've read through verse 7 now, the rest of this chapter, verses 8 through 10, is going to be referred to as Israel. And why is that? And the reason why is because at this point, Jacob, or Israel, I should call him Israel also, he's going to prophesy by the power of the Spirit to Joseph's sons. The rest of this chapter now is, is prophecy regarding Ephraim and Manasseh. So verse 8, then Israel, see that verse 8, then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. Now why did he say, who are these? Well, we find out here that the eyes of Israel were dim with age. You know, he's going blind and at the end of his life there and he couldn't see. This is an important fact. Why does the Bible tell us this? It's an important fact that we'll talk about that in, a, in just a few verses. Verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, 
God also has shown me your offspring. He's been blessed beyond belief. Jacob's just there at, his, at the end of his life. He's like, God, you just blessed me so. I never even thought I'd see Joseph alive. And not only have I seen Joseph and spent 17 years with him, but I've been able to see his children. As a grandparent, it's a blessing to see my grandchildren. I love my grandchildren. It's, it's a blessing. God, I'm, I'm like, Lord, you've blessed me and enabled me to see my children's children. And, and if the Lord tarries, and if I end up being, uh, hopefully I won't be 147 years old, but I might get the chance to see my children's children's children. I can't imagine being what a great-grandparent feels like. Maybe some of you know that experience. Well, Paul says this in Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And I thank the Lord that Maxwell Smart's not there anymore. All right. Ah. <laughs> uh, you know, Paul here, he's reflecting on, you know, sometimes we, God blesses us so much more than we could ever ask or think. Isn't that true in our lives? God's blessings. He, he loves us. And sometimes we pray for something and, and maybe God's answer is no. But then, but then it's because God wants to give us something even greater than what we were asking for. And so Jacob's just blown away by God's blessings there. Verse 12. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near. So what Joseph is doing, his dad's got bad eyesight. His dad's, you know, he's, he's in, almost bedridden at this point. And uh, so he's basically trying to make it easier for Jacob to bless the two boys. Manasseh being the firstborn, he's positioning them by Jacob's, uh, so that Jacob's right hand uh, could be laid on Manasseh. And, uh, you know, being on the right hand in the Bible, it really, it signifies the greatest blessing, the greatest favor. Um, Jesus, right? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's got the highest honor, the greatest blessing. So the right hand would bestow the greater blessing, which would be due to the firstborn, okay? Manasseh's the firstborn. So Joseph's positioning him so that Ephraim, or so Jacob could lay his right hand on Manasseh and give him the greater blessing. Ephraim the younger, of course, is situated closer to uh, Israel's left hand. Doesn't mean he's not getting blessed, but between the, as in relation to both the blessings, it's the lesser of the two blessings because Ephraim is not the oldest. Ephraim doesn't get that double portion. At least that's what normally should take place. Verse 14, then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger and, left, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And again, now let's hopefully the slide works. As Maxwell Smart would say, do you remember on the shows you go, ah, of course I knew it, the old cross the arms trick. You know, that's a, a, I was a big Get Smart fan. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm, I've been tainted. <laughs> the, the younger people are like, oh, I don't get that at all. <laughs> okay, this guy's, move on, pastor. <laughs> all right, verse 15. 
And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all life, my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. He talks about the covenant nature of God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. God's been faithful to Abraham. God revealed himself to Abraham. God revealed himself to Isaac. And God had revealed himself to Jacob. It speaks of the faithful covenant nature of God. The God that my, and my parents were believers. My mom's still alive. The God that my parents worshipped and, and they lived, my dad lived his life for. That's the God that I worship now. He's my God too. And so we see the faithful covenant nature of God. Then he mentions the shepherd heart of God. He says, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day. It speaks of the shepherd heart of God. God provides for his sheep. God loves us. And he provides for us as a shepherd, his flock. And then he says there, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. And we talked about that when we were in that chapter. The angel, it was, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And what this speaks of is the redemptive work of God in Christ Jesus. God had redeemed Jacob. So Jacob's just, you know, throughout his blessings, you can just see there. this is a heart of a man who's looking back on his life. And, you know, remember earlier when he, when he introduced himself to Pharaoh? Pharaoh said, how old you? How old are you? And he said, at that point, he was 130. He says, few and hard, or few and evil have been my life. And we talked about that last week. Jacob lived a very hard life, very hard life. But now he's not, he's not going, man I, man, I had such a hard life. He's just, at this point, he's just thanking God for God's blessings in his life. Well, what an important thing for us to be. Sometimes we focus on the bad. We focus on the negative and what's going wrong. And here, Jacob, I mean, he, he, he's about ready to, to, to pass on to, into eternity. And all he can think of is how God's blessed him. How God's just been with him all his life. Verse 17. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. And he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Jo- Joseph, you know, when, when, when Jacob crossed his arms, he's got, he's got his right hand on the younger and his left hand on the older. It's like, oh man, my dad, man, he's confused. And, and man, his eyesight, he doesn't know who he's blessing. I got to correct him. And uh, of course, Jacob goes, no, 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 no. I, I know what I'm doing. I know, I know, my son. Verse 10, it says, Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Remember back in verse 8, when, he, when he, he's talking to Joseph, the two boys are there, and he's like, who are these? It's because he couldn't see. And, and so Jacob thinks that Joseph's confused, and he can't see clearly. But you see, Israel can see clearly. He is seeing clearly. Because he's not seeing through the eyes of Jacob. He's seeing through the eyes of Israel. What are the eyes of Israel? It's the eyes of faith. 
That's what he's seeing. He's seeing with the eyes of faith. You know, sometimes we see things that we look at, and we look at it in the nature of Jacob. You know, the, 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 we look at the natural. We look at what's, what's there, and we go, oh, that's, that's what it is. But what we need to do so often is we need to see with the eyes of faith. Sometimes we only see what is tangible in front of us. Uh, we see with the eyes of Jacob. Sometimes what we see we think is real, but in fact, it's false. Listen to what Proverbs 23.5 says. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? So would you look at something that doesn't exist, he says, basically. For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. You know, we look at this, we go, we've got this, we're looking at this money, and, and the Bible says it's not, because it can fly away tomorrow. It can fly away tomorrow. It can be gone. You know, I always think about, and I know I've mentioned this before, but I always think about this. You know, the Jewish nations, they were dispersed, and, and after their, their exile, and, and for 2,000 years, they were all over the world. They prospered wherever they went. And they, they, they were the businessmen. They were the jewelers. They were the, the you know, they were, they, God just blessed them wherever they went. And as a result of that, many people around them were envious of the Jewish people. That's why there was a lot of anti-Semitism. Of course, there's a spiritual thing behind that but but they would look at them and the, the prosperous jews and, and they, they had that reputation and uh but you know when the holocaust came and 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 the jews that were in places like germany or, or in the netherlands or, or in these other countries where france where, where the where the uh the the uh, germans the nazis occupied it you know in a day maybe not in a day but momentary in a flash their money, their riches was confiscated by the, by the Nazis and gone. In a day it was gone. You know, it was just, pfft, there it went. didn't matter. So sometimes we put our eyes on things like riches, and yet the Bible says they uh, certainly make themselves wings. They fly like, a, uh, like an eagle toward heaven. You know, Paul and Barnabas, as they started their ministry, they had an opportunity to not see with the eyes of Jacob, but to see with the eyes of faith, to see with the eyes of Israel. In Acts chapter 14, verse 8, it says, And in Lystra there was a certain man without strength in his feet, who was sitting for, as a, uh, excuse me, and in Lystra a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. Verse 9 says, This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, and in verse 10, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Paul was looking at this man, and you could see with the eyes of Jacob, here, here's this cripple. Here's this young, here's this guy, you know, he, he's, he's a cripple. He's always going to be a cripple. But Paul saw him with the eyes of faith. And Paul looked at him and saw that he had the faith to be healed. And then Paul, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was able to heal him. It was God that healed him, obviously. Paul had a prayer for the Ephesians, and it's a prayer for you and me as well. It's in Ephesians 1, verse 18 and 19. He prays that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. We need those eyes of faith. We need to see with faith. And that's what Paul is praying for the Ephesians. See, with the natural eye, Manasseh was the oldest, right? 
With the, it should have been, it was a cultural thing, it should have been that he would be given the blessing of the firstborn because he was the oldest. Wow. <laughs> man, oh man. Okay. If he gets really bad, we'll just have to shut that off. I don't know. <laughs> but Nas was the oldest. He should have been given the blessing of the firstborn, but contrary to what was, you know, God's working contrary to what was expected. And instead, God speaks into Israel's heart, and God blesses the younger instead of the older. You know, that's not the first time that's happened. Throughout Scripture, we see that the younger has been blessed above the older. Abel was blessed above Cain. (laughs) Jacob was blessed above Esau. Joseph was blessed above Reuben. Ephraim blessed above Manasseh. David was blessed above all the other sons of Jesse. So we see that throughout Scripture. Why is it? Is it just God wants to mess with people's minds? No. It's God doesn't see things the way man sees things. God looks at the heart, the Bible says. God sees with the eyes of grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and 29, I always, I always think of this passage because I, I think of me. It says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. I, I look at myself, man, I can't even get a PowerPoint per, you know, right. And God looks at the foolish. God, God takes not many wise, not many foolish, but God has chosen us because it's, God wants to reveal his glory through weak flesh. So Israel's prophecy concerning the boys, you know, Ephraim would be blessed above Manasseh, who Manasseh was the firstborn. We see that played out in history. The tribe of Ephraim grew much greater than the tribe of Manasseh. In fact, later on, when the, when the ten northern tribes, they separate, there's a civil war, and the, the southern two tribes are the tribes of Judah, they're referred to as Judah. The ten northern tribes, frequently, they're referred to as Ephraim, because they were such a large tribe there. So verse 21, going back to Genesis chapter 48, verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. What a legacy to be able to pass down to a child. Hey, I'm leaving. I'm dying. I'm leaving the scene. But God is going to continue working in your life now. You know, Joshua was a man. Can you imagine stepping in the shoes, the filling, filling in the shoes for Moses? The Moses that was the great deliverer of, of the children of Israel, the, the lawgiver, the, the greatest, you know, I mean, he was, he was he's, to this day, he's revered by the Jewish people. And here comes Joshua, and Joshua's got to fill in the shoes of Moses, because Moses has died. And Joshua is, is you know, understandably, he's nervous, he's a young man, and, and it's just the, 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 the heaviness, the weight of what he was going to do, is just, it's on him. And the Lord spoke to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, 
so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Verse 22. Now Jacob, again, well, I should say Israel. Israel's prophesying more. He says, Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. You know what's interesting about that? There's no record of that in scriptures, that Jacob did that prior to this passage of scripture. Like what Alfred Eidersheim said. He said the tense took, the verb tense took there in verse 22, is the prophetic past in which the future is seen as already achieved. Because it would happen later on. And, and, and it was Jacob's looking at that, or Israel's looking at that, and it's as if it's already occurred. Isaiah 46, verse 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. You see, when God looks at things, He looks not as we see Him as the way they are, but He sees as they will be. God looks at our lives and He sees us, you know, and we look at our lives and go, Man, I'm a failure. I, I keep blowing it. I'm, you know, God looks at us, He looks at the end result when you and I are glorified in His presence. Throughout chapter 48, we've been talking about seeing with the eyes of faith. We get to chapter 49, and chapter 49 is listening according to faith. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 49. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. So here now Jacob summons all his sons to his bedside. Verse 32, excuse me, verse 2, he says, Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Travis pointed this out to me last week. You notice the words Jacob and Israel in that verse. He says, Hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to your father, uh, to Israel your father. I told him I was going to steal that this week. But how many of us have heard we all hear, right? Right now, tonight, right now, this morning, I'm reading to you scripture. And if you're not reading it yourself, you're just listening and you're hearing it. But the question is, are you, are you listening? Are you comprehending it? Are you hearkening to what you're hearing? And, and so it's just kind of an interesting verse there. Hear you, sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. And of course, he knows his time is very short. And so he's going to prophesy now over all of his sons. He says, there that I may tell you uh, what shall befall you in the last days. That word last days is very significant. Now there's not only a short-term fulfillment regarding these prophecies on these tribes of Israel, but there's also one thing that that, that I've seen in here uh, is that there's a chronological history of the nation of Israel prophesied in uh, chapter 49. And we'll be looking at that. Uh, I think it's very fascinating. So beginning with Reuben, verse 3, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Now let's just assume for a moment, Scripture doesn't tell us, let's just assume for a moment, at this point, Reuben doesn't know that the double portion has been passed on to uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, you know, 
via Jacob. He doesn't, he doesn't realize that, maybe. Maybe he wasn't in the room or whatever. So he's, he's there. And, and, and Jacob's saying this, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. And Reuben's like, I can just imagine, he's like, all right, this is it. This is the moment I've been waiting for, man. That double portion of the hair, it's all mine. But then the other shoe drops, so to speak. Verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. What's he referring to? Back in Genesis 35, verse 22, and it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. Israel heard about it, but he didn't do anything about it. He didn't do anything about it at the time. And 40 years have passed since that event took place. And maybe Reuben, you know, he was ashamed of it or whatever, but maybe it's like, man, 40 years ago, that's a long time. That's old history. Maybe he thought, man, I've, I've, I've got away with it. The Bible says, 1 Timothy 5.24, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. And Paul wrote in Galatians 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Reuben, man, he had the potential of having the greatest blessings of his father Jacob, the blessings of the firstborn. He was the beginning of Israel's strength. The firstborn, he was, he was, he was the greatest, had the greatest potential, but he would not excel. Why? Because of sexual immorality. Because of sexual immorality, he was disqualified from the greatest blessings that would have been his otherwise. And true to Israel's prophecy, the tribe of Reuben didn't excel. You can see that in in history. It's interesting. Out of the tribe of Reuben, there was no prophet. There's no judge. There's no king. There are no notable leaders that came from the tribe of Reuben. What about the history the chronological history of the nation of Israel. Reuben's prophecy speaks of the beginning of nation of the nation of Israel. You, you know, when was nation of Israel birthed? When was Israel birthed? And that was took place, if you recall, we'll get to it when we get into Exodus. It was in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. It was when they received the law of God, the Ten Commandments. At that point, Israel became a nation. And just like Reuben, the firstborn, you know, Reuben had all this potential. He had the greatest blessings ahead of him, the potential for the greatest blessings. But like Reuben who blew it and committed sexual immorality, so did the just-birthed nation of Israel. You recall when Moses went up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, what happened to the children of Israel? They're like, where is, where's, where's Moses? And they took, they had Aaron, his brother, and they had them, they, they talked him into making a golden calf. And they committed spiritual fornication with the golden calf that Aaron had made, as well as sexual fornication with each other. In 1 Corinthians 10, 7, it says, And do not become idolaters as were some of them. It's speaking of that generation. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So we see this prophecy of Reuben, it really speaks of the beginning, the birth 
of the nation of Israel. And they, and they, they blew it, just like Reuben blew it. Verse 5. Now he moves on to a couple other brothers. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter into their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. And in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce. And their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And we call the story after their sister Dinah was raped by Shechem. They tricked Levi and Simeon, tricked the men of Shechem. And they ended up murdering all the males among them. And of course, it would have been one thing for them to deal with Shechem, the individual who had done that, that evil deed. But they went ahead and they murdered all the men, not only him, those that were, in a sense, innocent of what, at least of what Shechem had committed. It says, in their anger, they slew a man, and in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. You know, in, in a battle people die, right? I mean, that, that's what happens. You, you enter into a war to win it, right? You, you, you're fighting a battle, you know, the killing of an enemy combatant, it can be arguably justified because it's during a time of war. But harming an ox, an innocent animal, that's like going one step beyond. And that's exactly what Simeon and Levi did in their cruel anger. It was uncontrolled. They just, in their self-will, they just, they just, they just let it all go, and they just committed this heinous act of blood, blood, uh, cold-blooded murder. And so, as as Jacob's or as Israel's prophesying this, he says, "Let not my soul enter their council; let not my honor be united to their assembly." Why did he say that? Proverbs twenty-two, verse twenty-four and twenty-five: Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes seven, verse nine: Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. And when people just let their anger go, there's no self-control. And in their self-will, they just, they just, they just, you know, they let it go. If you've got a problem with anger, you, it's uncontrolled, and you just let it go. And maybe, maybe you're proud of it. Maybe you go, you know what? That's just my, that's just who I am. Uh, you know, I, I'm just an angry person. I just, I just get. That's not good. If you and I are believers in Jesus Christ, we're to be transformed into Christ's image. Look through the scriptures. Christ didn't have uncontrolled rage. He got angry once, but it was very controlled. And it was for the right reasons. And so true to Israel's prophecy because of their self-will, the prophecy is, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And, And we see that historically, chronologically. Both the tribe of Simeon and the tribe of Levi were divided and scattered in Israel. Now Moses, at the end of his life, he's going to prophesy over the children of Israel. It's in Deuteronomy 33. And in that prophecy, and it's interesting, you know, there's several times where the tribes of Israel are enumerated, and usually one, sometimes one tribe's left out and other tribes included. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses doesn't even mention the tribe of Simeon. They were still existed, but he didn't mention them. 
In Joshua 19, verse 9, what happened to the tribe of Simeon? It says the inheritance of the children of Simeon was included in the share of the children of Judah. For the share of the children of Judah was too much for them. Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of that people. So rather than having their own land, the tribal land of Simeon, they were absorbed into Judah, just as Israel prophesied. Now, by God's grace, they are enumerated among the tribes of Israel in Revelation chapter 7. There's one tribe that's not, though, and we'll get to that when we talk about that, that son. Very fascinating. The tribe of Levi was likewise divided and scattered throughout Israel, but it was in a different way and for a different purpose. And there's two incidents in the, descent, in the life of the descendants of Levi that may have effected that outcome as a tribe. In Exodus 32, verse 26, you know, the children of Israel, they had talked Aaron into making this golden calf for them to worship. And as, as, as Moses came down from the, from the mountain and, and saw that the children of Israel were committing spiritual fornication, and he said, who's with me? Who's with the Lord God? And the only tribe that aligned themselves with Moses was the tribe of Levi. Exodus 32, verse 26 only the sons of Levi aligned themselves with Moses when the children of Israel were worshiping the golden calf. That was one incident. Another incident occurs in Numbers chapter 25. They're the children of Israel. They're, 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 uh, they're uh, committing uh, fornication with the Moabite. They're intermarrying and committing fornication with the Moabite women. And in Numbers 25, there's one particular Israelite. And in fact, they even give his name later on. He takes a Moabite woman into his tent, and it's in the full sight of all Israel, and he's shamelessly beginning to commit fornication with her. And at that time, God started striking the nation of Israel with the plague, and people were dying left and right. And Phinehas, who was of the tribe of Levi, he says he took a javelin in his hand, and he ran into the tent, and he thrust the javelin through both the Israelite and the Moabite woman. It's recorded in Numbers 25, verse 10 through 13. And so as a result of that, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore I say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And then verse 13, And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. So the priests, the, the tribe of, of, of Levi, they weren't given tribal land. They were given cities, 48 cities throughout the nation of Israel, throughout all the tribes of Israel. Because they were the priests of Israel. And they were spread out so that they could minister to the Lord on behalf of the people in the areas where they were, where they were throughout the land of Israel. What about the nation, or the history of the nation of Israel? Is there a chronology um, that we see there? In Reuben, we saw the birth of the nation committing spiritual fornication. And now we have this prophecy of Simeon and Levi that because of their self-will, they will be divided and they will be dispersed and scattered. Did that happen to the nation of Israel? Yes, it did. It speaks of the time when both, uh, well, so the nation of Israel, they became self-willed in their history. 
And they, later on, you know, God kept sending prophets to them. And they ended up allying themselves or allying themselves with nations like Egypt, Syria. They stopped looking to the Lord for their strength and for their, they started looking to the nations around them. And, and, and in their self-will, they ended up getting dispersed. And so chronologically, we see that. We see both the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity that occurred with the nation of Israel. So that's what those two sons, prophetically, we see that there. We get to verse 8. Now he's speaking to another son, the son Judah. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to his vine, to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This all points to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would descend from the tribe of Judah. Verse 8 there. Of course, Judah's name means praise. All his brothers, all the tribes of Israel would praise Judah. From Judah, the prophecy is in verse 8, would come a conqueror. What kind of conqueror came from the tribe of Judah? Look at Genesis. Well, you don't have to turn there. But Genesis 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking of that, the the battle between the enemy of our souls, Satan, and Jesus Christ, who would crush his head. 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. From Judah would come a conqueror, the Messiah. In verse 9, from Judah would come a lion. And we see that in Revelation 5.5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. From Judah would come a ruler. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes unto him, shall be the obedience of the people. What is he speaking about? The scepter. It's speaking about leadership. The leadership was to go to the tribe of Judah. But if you look at the history of the tribe of Judah, it didn't happen for over 600 years. Moses was a great leader, right? One of the first great leaders. He came from the tribe of Levi. Joshua, his successor, came from the tribe of Ephraim. Gideon, one of the great judges in the book of Judges, came from the tribe of Manasseh, as well as Samson, another judge. He came from the tribe of Dan. Samuel, that great priest, he came from the tribe of Ephraim. 
King Saul, the nation's first king, came from the tribe of Benjamin. It was only until that point when King David was raised up that the scepter had started there with the nation of Judah there. And he says that the scepter won't depart from, uh, from between his feet until Shiloh comes. What is Shiloh? If you look it up, there's different definitions, but basically it's a Hebrew word. It comes from shalom, and it's the one who brings peace. And the leadership would not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. You know, the ancient rabbis understood this to be speaking of the Messiah. They knew that this was speaking of the Messiah, that Shiloh was the Messiah. And then this prophecy, you know, that, that, the, that the scepter, the leadership, would never depart until this Messiah came. And the ancient rabbis believed that the right to self-government was symbolized by the right to perform capital punishment. So you recall when the Romans came in and they, they, took, they took power, right? They, they, they were the occupying forces there in Israel. Even at that point, the rabbis still felt like they had a level of self-governing. Why? Because they could still perform capital punishment. And so they, they believed... Uh, that the right to execute capital punishment would never be taken away from them until the Messiah appeared. But in 7 AD, something happened. In 7 AD, their world came crashing down around them. All that changed. The Romans in 7 AD removed Israel's right to perform capital punishment. You recall when, when they brought Jesus before Pilate, and they said, this man, you know, he's, you know, he's, an, he's an evildoer, and, 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 and Pilate's like, take him away. Deal with him according to your laws. And they said, we can't. Remember, Pilate had to crucify him. The Jews couldn't crucify him. That's why they handed him over to Pilate to crucify him, because their right to perform capital punishment had been removed from them in 7 AD. And it is said that in 7 AD, when Israel's right to perform capital punishment was taken away from them, that the rabbis that understood this prophecy, they walked the streets of Jerusalem. They said, woe unto us. The scepter has been taken away from Judah, and Shiloh has not come. At that point, they believed God's word had failed. But what they didn't realize was about that same time, there was a 12-year-old boy from Nazareth who was in the temple. And he was sitting in the temple, listening to the teachers of the law and asking questions. In Luke 2, verse 47, it says, And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. You see, while they thought that God's word had failed and Shiloh had not come, Shiloh had come. They just didn't know him. They didn't know it at that point. They didn't recognize the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God's word hadn't failed. God's word has never failed. So looking at verse 11, it says, Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he was washed. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This speaks of the reign of the Messiah during the millennium. And we'll talk about that as we get to that later on. But what about the history of the nation of Israel? Uh, this prophecy of Judah speaks of the nation of Israel after they've returned from those two captivities, which was, uh, which was symbolized there in, in, in uh, uh, Simeon and Levi. After the 400 silent years, there was 400 years where there was no prophet. The word of the Lord was silent for 400 years between, the, between Malachi and you get to the Gospels. And it speaks of the first coming of the Messiah to the nation of Israel when Shiloh came. The appearance of the Messiah culminated on what we call Palm Sunday, right? It's when Jesus rode into Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey. 
And it's interesting there in Luke 19, verse 42 and 40 to 44, he rides into, into Jerusalem. He says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come when, upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So we saw Reuben, chronologically, the tribe of, of Israel as, as they disqualified themselves from the greatest blessings through fornication spiritual fornication Simeon and Levi chronologically showing the, the, the time when both the nation of Israel was went into the uh, Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity and then we get to Judah the coming of the Messiah revealed to the nation of Israel well what's the next prophecy of Israel what happened next that was major in the life of the nation of Israel it was the destruction of Judah uh, Jerusalem excuse me in their exile and we'll look at that next week, and we'll go, well, who's the next son who's being prophesied? And is, can we see anything in that? That's the tribe of Zebulun. We're going to get to that next week, because there's, there's a lot of things in there. I, can't, I don't want to keep you till 2 in the afternoon going through that stuff. But You know, I look back at Jacob and his life, and you see that Jacob, looking back, just seeing God's faithfulness, and now he's prophesying. It's the last thing that he's going to do. Next week as we get into the rest of chapter 48 and 49, we're going to see that, he, that he's, going to, he's going to die. He's going to breathe his last and be gathered up to his people. And in these last moments, he's seeing with the eyes of faith. He's prophesying. Spirit of God, come. Why don't you, worship team, you guys come on up. They're going to lead us in a, a couple of worship songs. And... Uh, as they do that, I kind of want to just reflect on what we've studied this morning, God's faithfulness, God's blessings. And I think for us, one of the things that just jumped out at me is, is seeing with the eyes of faith, not seeing with the eyes of Jacob, but seeing with the eyes of Israel, not seeing things as they are. Maybe you're looking at your life right now and you see things as they are, and, and it's just like, man, I, I, don't, I can't see any way around this, or this thing is so big in front of me. I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you this morning to see with the eyes of faith. Because God's not done working in any of our lives. He's got a plan and a purpose for each one of us. So I want to encourage you in that this morning. Let's go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray for each and every person here this morning. Lord, I, I know that sometimes I switch characters, and I, I'm like Jacob, Lord. I see things as they are, and I think that that's the way it is. Lord, I pray that you would increasingly give me the eyes of faith that I would see as Israel, who is ruled by God, led by God. Lord, that I would see with the eyes of faith and that I would trust you to accomplish those things, Lord. Thank you for giving us that reminder this morning, Lord. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.